0: Hi, Linda. Hi, Nancy. We are on season one, episode 10 of the Front Porch Book Club. The Front Porch Book Club is a podcast that meets twice a month, and we like to dig deep into the relationships between characters and the worlds they live in. Grab your book and iced tea and join us on the Front Porch. So, Linda, today we get to interview Mark Snyder Jr. about his book, The Legacy. I think listeners are going to be really interested in this interview, and we got into some questions about the ideas that motivated Mark to write the book, and then what happened once he was motivated to write the book, how the characters changed the story that he intended to write.
1: It's amazing because you would think that all of this was plotted out in his head before he started. There's so many different parts that blend together, but it just kind of took on a life of its
0: own and created a really neat story. So Linda, you're the one who suggested that the legacy be our July book.
1: Because I know Mark Snyder Jr. <laughs> I worked with him years ago when we worked at a post secondary school, and that's how I got to know him. And I knew him as a teacher, but now he's an author. He's also teaching, an actor. I know he sings opera and has done some stage work, and he did that a couple of decades ago, too.
0: Unbelievable.
1: Yeah, animal rights activists. And he's currently living in the Pacific Northwest. Mark enjoys teaching all things writing and literature. Um, He's taught classes and composition and literature at the university level since 2008. Music, theater, TV has also been a very important part of his life and he's performed in dozens of professional stage productions, as well as on TV and internet commercials. I've seen one of the commercials. Uh, He had that posted somewhere and I'm like, look at Mark. This this is so awesome. He can sing. I mean, and now he's written his first fictional novel, The Legacy. And that is what we're going to talk to him about today. Great.
0: Let's get to it. Okay. Welcome, Mark. (laughs) Welcome. Thank you. We're so
1: excited to have you on our front porch. We have known each other for decades, I think. That's right. (laughs) On and off, and you have been everywhere. Now, you have had lots of creative projects since we met eons ago, and that led me to connecting with you on Facebook, and then I see you're an author amongst all the other things that you're doing, and that you wrote a book, so I downloaded it and read it. All I have to say, Mark, is this eerie, mysterious, (laughs) mystic, at times troubling... theme oh, yeah. was inside of you.
2: I know, I know.
1: What was that about?
2: <laughs> well, it was an outlet that I needed to recognize as well as get out. You're right, Linda. When people talk to me about the book, they're surprised at the subject matter and the activity that goes on inside of the book, because it's the complete opposite of person that they know, a nice person. I'd, I'd like to think so anyway. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. <laughs>
2: No gore happens in my life. I've never personally intentionally injured anyone and <laughs> and it's just kind of like a little bit of a bloodbath here and there. <laughs> <laughs> It was just fun to write that kind of stuff, opposite of how I actually think on a daily basis. And I think we all have that inside of us. And gore and horror and things like that I really do enjoy as a consumer of media. So it just naturally came to me. And and I didn't intend to write something like that. It just kind of happened on its own, strange enough.
1: Oh, that's interesting. You know, yeah. Mark, I have a connection with you because I think I'm a nice person too. <laughs> but I really enjoy, and that's part of the reason I think I enjoyed your book amongst many, is I have this part of me that really likes creepy, dark themes. Oh, yeah. I can completely understand that you like that.
2: There's no zombies in my book or anything, but I love zombie stuff. I don't know why. I just love thinking about waking up and looking out my window and seeing utter destruction (laughs) and The Walking Dead. (laughs) I don't want that to happen, but I'm fascinated by the whole um, dystopian world tilted on its axis and all, all, you know what, breaking loose. Yeah. That to me is exciting. I don't want it to happen because I want to live my life and I, I care about lots of people, but... That idea, just there's so much creativity that's involved in that kind of thought thinking, wow, what if humans couldn't run the world anymore? Well, so many things could happen when you entertain those, those ideas.
0: So is that where you started the book from just thinking about what if humans running the world was not a given? What if that was in the balance? What would that look like? Or what was the motivation for the book?
2: Well, thanks again for having me on, ladies. I really appreciate talking about this. (laughs) I don't ever get to, only from time to time. So I've had this story of, in my head, five people, 25 years apart, starting at age zero and all the way up. And at every 25 years, something big was supposed to happen to them, but it happened to each of them. Then their lives would start to become intertwined, which would be the path toward the end of the human race was kind of what my idea was. I was in high school when I started thinking about that.
0: Wow. Oh my goodness.
2: I know. And it's been in swirling around in my brain. I've started writing it in my teens and 20s. And I never actually sat down and just said, you know what? Don't think about it anymore. Just start to write. So that was the original idea. And that's what I started to write. But then as these characters started to unfold, they went in different paths that I never expected. And then after I finished the first part of the book, I waited like a month or two, and then I'm like, this story's not over. And that's why there is a second part to it. I was gonna write a second book, it didn't work as a second book. It relied too much on the first part's narrative to carry it along. I tried to separate the two and write a second book, but I was retelling too much of the first story in the second story, and it just it didn't work. That's why the book has now two parts rather than being a standalone novel of its own. The book went through so many different changes. I don't even know if I have the energy to write another novel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I have two in the works right now, but the fact that the characters went off on their own way, they did not live 25 years apart from one another, the lineage of the legacy members still existed, but it just, they existed in a different way. That was completely surprising to me. The fact that they took on sort of a a life of their own.
1: I can't believe that that wasn't a master plan. (laughs) When I read this and all of these different characters that we meet in the first chapters, And how they intertwine together to fit into a story. I figured you had to have a master plan of how this whole thing progresses to get us into a storyline together. You
2: should have seen my wall at home. It was wallpapered with sheets of notebook paper all over the wall with timelines and with ages and years and locations, because the book takes place all over the world. And so many times I had to edit, Ellen was supposed to be this age at this time, not that age. And, oh, right, she hasn't yet met the Donovans. But because I was going back in time and forward in time, once that became clear, then it became a master plan. That's another reason why part two didn't work as a second book, because part two goes back in time before part one, and then fast forward after part one. So you're right, Linda. I had a map on my wall of notebook papers. It was highlighted, some of them that I'd keep watching and and I had to subtract and add ages. Yeah, it was a mess. It was so hard to keep all that straight in my head. I had two editors and a proofreader and they didn't even catch all the errors sometimes in the, in the space and time continuum. So it was not easy to make all those pieces fit together. Some people were uncomfortable with the pacing of the book. They said it was too fast, and so they got confused. And then I had a review the other day that said the book was too slow. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> As an author, it's probably fun to have differing opinions about your book, too, and people getting so invested in the book that they feel strongly about it.
2: Yeah, you know, that that is what I enjoy reading that kind of critique that somebody actually took the time to not only read the book, but to think about it intellectually enough that they had an opinion on it. That makes me happy, even if they aren't necessarily saying good things about it. Because art and and music and, and whatever, painting and anything creative is so subjective. And you're going to get great reviews. You're going to get not so great reviews and you're going to get everything in between. And, and you just have to say, thank you. Every (laughs) once in a while though, I will have a little bit of a temper tantrum uh, when (laughs) I feel someone's personally attacking me. And sometimes they do, you know, uh, a guy said that he got so sick of hearing about climate change in the book. And it's like, that's like the catalyst of the reason why, this was happening in the book. This is the reason why the legacy was failing was due to humans, you know, poor treatment of of the planet. So it had to be there. I couldn't not bring it up. And it's not belabor, like I don't belabor the point, like it's not just constant, constant climate change. And and, um, he had a really big problem with Ellen her character and how I treated her in the book, because she wasn't exactly coddled or, um, you know, (laughs) spoiled.
1: No. No. Okay, getting on to Ellen, I have a question. Yeah, yeah. You grew up in a rural conservative. Did you draw on any of those experiences for this kind of rural religious sect?
2: No, Linda, believe it or not, the conservative um, rural upbringing that I had had nothing to do with the location. I was actually living in Colorado while I was writing the majority of the book. And so I just knew of the conservative leanings of any place in Colorado outside of Denver or Boulder. Everywhere else was super conservative. Okay. And I think I was watching um, a documentary about um, conservative fundamentalist Christian group, and it just sprouted the idea in my brain. I grew up in a rural conservative place, but The conservative ideas of where I grew up had nothing to do with religion. It had only everything to do with racism and homophobia. (laughs) So uh, religion was not to blame for the conservatism of the place where I grew up. Just hate. (laughs) I shouldn't laugh about that, but it's true. Like the conservatives in the Donovan situation, I think they were, it's almost like the Handmaid's Tale conservative people. They're smart. Mr. and Mrs. Donovan really knew what they were doing. They were manipulative. Um, Mm -hmm. They knew how to manipulate the people of the town that they infiltrated. And they knew how to develop that sect of people that were already kind of existing. And they brought them together and made it even stronger. So, yeah, I wanted them to be both evil and smart at the same time.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: One of the themes that Linda and I talked about that we thought was really strong in this book is the whole theme of destiny. And we were wondering what drew you to exploring the destinies of these characters and and what is it about destiny that you wanted to write about? Because it seems like that was an intentional part of the book's message. Oh, yeah.
2: You know, and without it, this legacy couldn't have existed. It is all about that. I'm not a religious person. I, I'm not even sure if I'm spiritual or not, but I mm-hmm. would like to believe that uh, we have a path. I don't think that our path is predetermined. I do think that we get to make decisions and 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 change our paths if we can, if we want to. But I like the idea of the destiny of the human race being controlled by itself. The fact that our behavior as humans gets to affect the existence and the success or failure of that existence and I think we're failing miserably at it. So I was making not a political statement, but I was making my own statement toward the human race about where we're going. We don't respect the planet we live on. We don't respect our only home. And we listen to people that tell us that money is more important than natural resources, I'm a big animal rights activist and, you know, some of my work with the wildlife and, you know, I just started a foundation for uh, senior dogs and the book was really getting going during the, the outbreak. And so like when it first started, my inner angst uh, and anger toward my own species was sort of speaking in this book and that we have the choice to fix things just like our characters do. There was a supernatural presence in the book that was working against the legacy. But if the characters would have acted in the way that they were supposed to and not fallen prey to the continuation of abusing the planet and all these other things, then they could have been successful. It was was a commentary on how I feel about our planet and the way that we treat it and that we have the destiny that we have available to us could be one of success or it could be one of complete failure. And that isn't technically destiny, right? Like destiny is sort of that idea that there's a lot of predetermined ideas that go into that. And I think there there are, but there's also a chance for us to, to make our own choices too. So it's kind of a combination of both. I like the fact that, that we have say, but I also like the fact that we're all part of the earth that includes plants and, and animals and other people and natural resources and things like that too.
0: There's definitely the commentary about humanity in general, but I did love the way you focused on the importance of individual action too, and that individuals and the heroic actions they take or the self-sacrificing actions they take really matter. And you put your characters in positions, some of them, that it would have been easier not to be heroic and not be self-sacrificial. So to me, it seems like you might have been angry at the human race, but maybe you still have some hope for us.
2: Yes, yes, for sure. So Clayton is that guy.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: He's my hero. Yes. And Scott, his friend, a little bit, he's not as prevalent in the book, but they both represented that same kind of kind caring they're just the human that we should all aspire to be right so clayton and amir share the position of the balance in the legacy and in a balance's life they have to undergo some early trauma because that early trauma creates the ability to become the hero because if you're just like a spoiled little brat who gets everything they want and then you're you're tasked with this immense idea of finding this being you don't even know exists it just won't work so they needed to be tested like in the beginning and so i wanted there to be that test but i didn't want it to affect them moving forward so i wanted them to still be kind still be caring still be good good people unlike the imbalances. The imbalances are just a mess, but the balance (laughs) is meant to be balanced. Clayton's father's disappearance and and Amir's mother's disappearance created a strong person, but they both remained giving and kind, and they did wonderful things for the world. Amir was trying to advance gender disparity and education in Pakistan, and Clayton was still trying to find his way with uh, what he wanted to do with his life. And so he decided to follow in his father's footsteps as kind of an homage to him as well and get out of Australia and move to New York. But then later on, what he does for the world is his good thing for the planet as far as all the, the technology that he creates for carbon filtration systems and things like that to help with global warming and climate change and things. So the balances were my faith in humanity, and humanity uh, hopefully being restored, that small glimmer of hope that we all would like to see in other people. That I dreamt of Clayton all the time. Oh. I'm not a good drawer or anything, but I would draw pictures of him just to get an idea of what he looked like, to try to care about him, to see a person, not just character, and it worked, you know. I, I commissioned my friend to do some illustrations for me, and um, so she drew a bunch of pictures for me that helped me keep focused on who these characters were in my brain. And Clayton was the one that I I kind of fell in love with him a little bit, not as not romantically, but I mean, as far as the kind of person that he was. And that's that's the thing about writing a book that I didn't expect was that these characters truly turned into things that I didn't plan for. And like part of my answer to some of these questions is it, it just happened that way, <laughs> you know?
1: <laughs> I, yeah.
2: I had a lot of it planned out, but as I'm typing away, I'm like, wow, I can't believe that just happened. Wow. I know. It's so strange. It was almost like I was channeling some memory that I had from something. And and it took the writing of this book to bring it out. of.
1: We have like this international bookmark and yes. we're all over the world. So it doesn't surprise me you had to have a map up there where everybody's <laughs> coming from. Was there a purpose for going global with this?
2: Yes, because it's a global issue. That was so hard to do though. Um, Thankfully we have something called Google Maps and you can scroll (laughs) into anything and see everything. Like the 88 (laughs) hotel is an actual hotel in Hong Kong and I could see that it was by the water. It was really helpful for me to dig in and find out customs of, you know, in Pakistan, I wrote a lot about women and the things that they go through. So I looked up the gender disparity in education. I had to um, educate myself on what happens in classrooms in Pakistan, the treatment of women in, in Pakistan and how, you know, a lot of men get away with abusing their wives and their daughters they even deal with mercy killings and things like that. That whole situation I had to be sensitive to. I didn't want to put an entire region of the planet in a box and say that all men in Pakistan beat their women or anything like that. But, but I had to make it fit logically mm-hmm. too. Can a woman in this day and age be taken from her home and, and the man not face any consequences? Well, sadly, yeah, there are places on our planet where that stuff still happens.
0: There are some really difficult passages, the the child abuse, the spousal abuse. It felt like you were contrasting some of the worst of humanity with some of the best, but you sucked us really into caring about the characters like Amir and Clayton. So why did they have to go through such terrible things?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, they needed to be strong. So in order to be a strong person, I think, in my personal opinion, uh, you have to work for that strength. I needed them to be tested and then also to have a fire inside of them. Clayton and Amir needed to be innately um, on a path to find Ellen. That was essential. So in order to do that, though, they needed to be strong individuals. So that had to work out that way. Sarah and Joanna, they needed to be a reflection of humanity as it stands. As humans devolve down a path of ruining our planet, being terrible to one another, tossing their trash out the window, beating their children, fighting with one another, they reflected that. So as the world got worse, so did the imbalances. Once humans got to a point where they were getting so bad. That's where our imbalances just went haywire. Several legacy cycles ago, maybe three, four, five hundred years ago, they weren't that way. They were just going on with their lives. But they were the, the measure of um, the state of humanity. That was the whole point of their character. So they interfered with the legacy process. Uh, if they were just living life and having a good time and being happy... They wouldn't want to interfere with destroying the human race. They needed a reason for that. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that was so fun about this book that there were so many complex characters that we kept meeting at different points. And you really trusted the reader to keep track of what was going on and then anticipate when they would start intertwining and what would it look like? Wait a second. I know a lot about that character. What's going to happen when they meet up with? this other character who has very different intentions. I think that's the mark of a oh, really enjoyable you. book. Oh,
2: I'm so glad to hear you say that because that has been the bone of contention with a lot of readers for me. Many were uncomfortable with being asked to, to take on that responsibility, being comfortable with having storylines, multiple storylines going on at one time knowing that eventually things will work together. And that's why the pacing needed to be the way it was, so that it didn't take too long. Yes. So that those characters were introduced to one another soon enough. And that's why it had to be paced that way.
0: (laughs) What other books or creative endeavors are you involved in right now?
2: So I started another book at the same time I was writing The Legacy. It was a thriller, No Supernatural. It was a thriller of a family. They were living in the woods of Vermont, and um, mental illness is a big part of the book. And exploiting mental illness is a big part of the book. But it's another thriller. There's a father, a mother, and three children. They move to the middle of nowhere because the mother inherits a house. Uh, they want a slower lifestyle. She's an attorney, and her husband was a teacher, but he stopped working, and she's opening a practice in the mountains in Vermont. the The wife has a secret. The husband has schizophrenia. So there's a problem with those two things. And so eventually, all you know what breaks loose. And uh, (laughs)
1: Yeah, that sounds really good.
2: (laughs) I learned a lot from writing this first book about what it means to be an author, and how to approach it, and what mistakes not to make. I also just opened a nonprofit organization EllensHonor.org is a resource for people who have senior dogs who can't afford to pay for their medicines, who can't afford to pay for their expensive medical care. Also for dogs that are in precarious situations that need to be rescued, that are seniors, who might need to be rehomed or who aren't being treated the way that they need to be treated. I'd eventually like to open Ellens House and have a, uh, a large senior dog rescue where they uh, they live and get all the medical care that they need and then get adopted out as they, as they cycle through.
1: I was just thinking about your book, Mark, because in a lot of ways, all the things that you're doing is like Clayton, you're the best of us doing just such great noble work and being creative (laughs) and bringing out the best of, of us. So I appreciate that. What's the best way to stay in touch with you, Mark websites, any of that. You can go to my website,
2: at jr.com That takes you directly to my website with all the keep in touch with me stuff. It has all the book stuff. It has all the links to get the book um, in all of its forms. You can get it directly from my website, uh, but you can also follow the links to the Amazon page if you have a Kindle and things like that. Uh, the book is involved in that Kindle Unlimited program. So if you're subscribed to that, you can get it there. It's on um, all the other ones too. So you can get it on Google Play, on. Apple. It's available just about everywhere. You can get in touch with me at MarkSnyderJr.com and Ellen's Honor is Ellen'sHonor.org in case anybody wants to check that out too.
0: This has just been so delightful. It's been so fun talking with you about your book and then also about some of the other creative activities that you're involved in. Thanks so much for joining us on the front porch. Thank
2: you for having me. I really appreciate it. Taking the time out to talk to me about the book is is definitely um, an honor. I would do it all day long if I could. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, Mark, it was so good <laughs> seeing you again. You too. We'll have you on next for that next eerie book about that family. Oh, yes. Oh, that'd be great. Take care, Mark. Bye-bye.
2: Thank you. Thanks so much.
1: Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh, my golly. That was so great talking to Mark. <laughs> That was fun. He's got a lot going on in his head. Um, It's just amazing what this book is and how he thought about it and how he put all these different people together. And I'm thinking, you know, my friend Mark is Clayton. He has just got all those great qualities rolled up. I was always so impressed by his personality and his love of life and doing the right things and his outgoing personality. So it was kind of neat to hear him really loving that character, because I actually do see some of Mark in him.
0: Yeah, he was really fun to talk to. And you're right. He is absolutely so nice and kind, but he sure can write evil. (laughs) I
1: know. That's amazing.
0: <laughs> I guess to have the light, you also have to have the dark. You have to be well, yeah. able to access both, both parts of your personality. Well, he did talk about that, didn't he? I right. never knew it was in there, but
1: I guess somewhere. Okay. We'll stop by the front porch the next time. Our August book is The NGO Game, Post-Conflict Peacekeeping in the Balkans
0: and Beyond, written by Dr. Patrice McMahon. Patrice is one of my friends, and I'm so excited for us to have a chance to talk about this book. Once again, very different book than any of the books we've done so far. This is a nonfiction book that explores the role of non-governmental organizations and other international actors who try to rebuild post-conflict countries. And Patrice has spent years researching post-conflict countries through fieldwork and interviews. And in this book, she examines why NGOs have become so popular. But They may be part of the post-construction problem for countries as well. And she specifically in this book focuses on post-war Balkans.
1: Sounds really interesting. Just downloaded the book, uh, started reading it. It sounds really like something that we'll enjoy talking about and talking to her about. You can order her book through our website at thefrontporchbookclub.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our mailing list and you'll get occasional newsletters from us as well, telling you what we're up to and what's coming up on our future podcasts.
0: And if you order the book through our link, we'll get a small affiliate commission to help support the podcast at no cost to you. Our episodes come out twice a
1: month on the first and third Wednesday of each month. Looking forward to next month. I'm looking forward to it too, Nancy. See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye.